Section four of Little Journeys to the Homes of Famous Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Bodorf. Little Journeys to the Homes of Famous Women by Elbert Hubbard. Madame Guillon, Part Two. The town of Montregis is one day's bicycle journey from Paris. As for the road, though one be a wayfaring man and from the States, he could not err therein. You simply follow the Seine as if you were intent on discovering its course, keeping to the beautiful highway that follows the winding stream. And what a beautiful, clear, clean bit of water it is. In Paris, your washerwoman takes your linen to the river, just as they did in the days of Pharaoh and the bundle comes back sweet as the breath of June. Imagine the result of such recklessness in Chicago. But as I rode out of Paris that bright May day, it seemed Monday all along the way, for dames with baskets balanced on their heads were making their way to the waterside, followed by troops of barefoot or sabot-shod children. There was one fine young woman with a baby in her arms, and the innocent firstborn was busily taking its breakfast as the mother walked calmly along bearing on her well-poised head the family wash and a mile further on as if she had seen her rival and gone her one better was another woman with the two-year-old cherub perched secure on the top of the swaying basket proud as a cardinal about to be consecrated it was a study in balancing that i have never seen before nor since and i only ask those to believe it who know things so true that they dare not tell them as the day wore on i saw that the wash was being completed for the garments were spread out on the greenest of green grass, or on the bushes that lined the way. By ten o'clock I was nearing Fontainebleau, and the clothes were nearly ready to take in, but not quite, for while waiting for the warm sun and the gentle breeze to dry them, the thrifty dames, who were French and make soup out of everything, put in the time by laundering the children. It seemed like that economic stroke of good housewives who used the soapy wash-water for scrubbing the kitchen floor. There they were, dozens of hopefuls on whom the fate of the nation rested, creepers to ten-year-olds, being scrubbed and dipped, or playing parlez-vous tag in lieu of a towel, as innocent of clothes as Carlyle's imaginary house of lords. And so I passed off the road that traced the Seine to a road that kept company with the canal. I followed the towpath, even in spite of warnings that it was against the law. It was a one-horse canal for many of the gaily painted boats were drawn only by a single shaggy-limbed percheron the boats were sharp proud and narrow and on some were bareheaded women knitting and men carving curious things out of blocks of wood as they journeyed and i said to myself if it is the pace that kills these people are making a strong bid for immortality i hailed the lazily moving craft waving my hat and the slow-going tourists called back cheerily by and by I came to a great, wide plain that stretched away like a tideless summer sea. The wheat and lentils and pulse were planted in long strips. In one place I thought I could trace the good old American flag that you never really love unless you're on a foreign shore, made with alternate strips of millet and peas, with a goodly patch of cabbages in the corner for stars. But probably this was imagination for i had been thinking that in a week it would be the fourth of july and i was far from home in a land where firecrackers are unknown 
coming to a little rise of ground i could see lying calm and quiet amid the world of rich growing grain the town of montregis across the blue hillside was montregis castle framed in a mass of foliage i stopped to view the scene and the echo of vesper bells came pealing gently over the miles as the nodding poppies at my feet bowed reverently in the breeze villages in france viewed from a distance seem so restful and idyllic there is no sound of strife no trace of rivalry no vain pride only white houses the homes of good men and gentlewomen and cherub children and all the church steeples truly point to god yet on closer view but what of that when i reached the town the church whose spire i had seen from the distance beckoned me first i turned off from the wide thoroughfare intending just to get a glimpse of the outside of the building as i passed but the great iron gates thrown invitingly open and a rusty dusty dog of flanders lying in the entry waiting for his master told me that there was service within so i entered passing through the noiseless swinging door and into the dim twilight of the house of prayer a score of people were there and standing in the aisle was a white-robed priest he was speaking and his voice came so gently so sure withal so exquisitely modulated that i paused and leaning against a pillar listened i think it was the first time i ever heard a preacher speaking in a large church who did not speak so loud that an echo chased his sentences round and round the vaulted dome and strangulated the sense the tone was conversational and the manner so free from canting conventionally that i moved up closer to get a view of the face it was too dark to see well but i came under the spell of the man's earnest eloquence the sacred stillness the falling night the odor of incense and banks of flowers piled about the feet of an image of the holy virgin evidently brought by the peasantry having nothing else to give made a combination of melting conditions that would have subdued a heart of stone the preacher ceased to speak and as he raised his hands in benediction i involuntarily with the other worshippers knelt on the stone floor and bowed my head in silent reverie suddenly i was roused by a crashing noise at my elbow and glancing round saw that an old man near me had merely dropped his cane a heavy cudgel it was that falling on the stone flagging sent a thundering reverberation through the vaulted chambers the worshippers were slipping out one by one and soon no one was left but the old man of the cudgel and myself he wore wooden shoes and was holding the cordwood fast between his knees rolling his hat nervously in his big hands he's a stranger too i said to myself he is the man that owns the rusty dog of flanders and he's waiting to give the priest some message i leaned over towards my neighbor and asked the priest what is his name father francis monsieur and the old man swayed back and forward in his seat as if moved by some inward emotion still fingering his hat just then the priest came out from behind the altar wearing a black robe instead of the white one he moved down with a sort of quiet majesty straight towards us we arose as one man it was as though someone had pressed a button father francis walked by me bowing slightly and shook hands with my old neighbor they stood talking in an undertone a last struggling ray of light from the dying sun came in over the chancel and flooded the great room for an instant 
it allowed me to get a good look at the face of the priest. As I stood there staring at him, I heard him say to the old man as he bade him good-bye, Yes, tell her I'll be there in the morning. Then he turned to me, and I was still staring, and as I stared I was repeating to myself the words the people said when Dante used to pass. There is a man who has been to hell. You are an Englishman, said Father Francis to me pleasantly as he held out his hand. Yes, I said, I am an Englishman. That is, no, an American. I was wondering if he had really heard me make that Dante remark, and anyway, I had been rudely staring at him and listening with both ears to his conversation with the old man. I tried to roll my hat, and had I a cudgel I would surely have dropped it. And with it all I wondered if the dog of Flanders waiting outside was not getting impatient for me. Oh, an American! I'm glad! I have very dear friends in America. Then I saw that Father Francis did not look so much like the exiled Florentine as I had thought, for his smile was winning as that of a woman, the corners of his mouth did not turn down, and the nose had not the Roman curve. Dante was an exile, this man was at home, and would have been anywhere. He was tall, slender, and straight. He must have been sixty years old, but the face in spite of its furrows was singularly handsome, grave yet not depressed. It showed such feminine delicacy of feeling, such grace, such high intellect, that I stood and gazed, as I might, at a statue in bronze. But plain to see, he was a man of sorrow, and acquainted with grief. The face spake of one, to whom might have come a great tribulation, and who by accepting it had purchased redemption, for all time, from all the petty troubles of earth. You must stay here as long as you wish, and you will come to our old church again, I hope, said the father. He smiled, nodded his head, and started to leave me alone. Yes, yes, I'll come again. I'll come in the morning. For I want to talk to you about Madame Guillaume. She was married in this church, they told me. Is that true? I clutched a little. Here was a man I could not afford to lose, one of the elect. Oh, yes, that was a long time ago, though. Are you interested in Madame Guillaume? I am glad. Not to know Fenelon seems a misfortune. He used to preach from that very pulpit, and Madame was baptized at that font and confirmed here. I have pictures of them both, and I have their books. One of the books is a first edition. Do you care for such things? When I was broke in London, in the fall of 89, did I care for such things? I could not recall what I said, but I remembered that this brown-skinned priest with his liquid black eyes and the look of sorrow on his handsome face stood out before me like the picture of a saint. I made an engagement to meet him the next morning when he bethought him of his promise to the old man of the cudgel and wooden shoes. Come now, then, come with me now. My house is just next door. And so we walked up the main aisle of the old church, around the altar where Madame Guillon used to kneel, and by a crooked little passageway entered a house fully as old as the church. A woman who might have been as old as the house was setting the table in a little dining-room. She looked up at me through brass-rimmed spectacles, and without orders or anyone saying a word, she whisked off the tablecloth, replaced it with a snowy clean one, and put on two plates instead of one. Then she brought in toasted brown bread and tea, and a steaming dish of lentils, and fresh-picked berries in a basket all lined with green leaves. It was not a very sumptuous repast, but t'was enough. Afterward I learned that Father Francis was a vegetarian, 
he did not tell me so neither did he apologize for absence of fermented drink nor for his failure to supply tobacco and pipes now i have heard that there be priests who hold in their cowled heads choice recipes for spiced wines and who carry hidden away in their hearts all the mysteries of the chafing dish but father francis was not one of these his form was thin but the bronze of his face was the bronze that comes from red corpuscles and the strongly corded neck and calloused bony hands told of manly abstinence and exercise in the open air and sleep that follows peaceful thoughts knowing no cholera after the meal father francis led the way to his little study upstairs he showed me his books and read to me from his one solitary first edition then he unlocked a little drawer in an old chiffonon and brought out a package all wrapped in chamois this parcel held two miniature portraits one of Fenelon and one of madame guillon that picture of Fenelon belonged to madame guillon he had it painted for her and sent it to her while she was in prison at vincennes the other i bought in paris i do not know its history the good priest had work to do and let me know it very gently thus you have come a long way brother the road was rough i know you must be weary come i'll show you to your room he lighted a candle and brought me to a bedroom at the end of the hall it was a little room very clean but devoid of all ornament save a picture of the madonna and her babe that hung over the head of the little iron bedstead it was a painting not very good i think father francis painted it himself the face of the holy mother was very human divinely human as motherhood should be father francis was right the way had been rough and i was tired the treetops sang a cooing lullaby and the night wind sighed solemnly as they wandered through the hallway and opened doors it did not take me long to go to sleep later the wind blew up fresh and cool i was too sleepy to get up and hunt for more covering and yet i was cold as i curled up in a knot and dreamed i was first mate with peary on an expedition in search of the north pole and the last i remember was a vision of gray-robed priest tiptoeing across the stone floor of his throwing over me a heavy blanket and then hastily tiptoeing out again the matin bells or the birds or both awoke me early but when i got downstairs i found my host had preceded me his fine face looked fresh and strong and yet i wondered when he had slept after breakfast the old housekeeper hovered near what is it margaret said the father gently you haven't forgotten your engagement asked the woman with just a quaver of anxiety oh no margaret then turning to me come you shall go with me we will talk of fenelon and madame guillon as we walk it is eight miles and back but you will not mind the distance oh didn't i tell you where i'm going you saw the old man at the church last night it is his daughter she is dying dying of consumption she has not been a good girl she went away to paris three years ago and her parents never heard from her we tried to find her but could not and now she has come home on her own accord come home to die i baptized her twenty years ago how fast the time has flown the priest took a stout staff from the corner and handing me its mate we started again down the white dusty highway we went out on the stony road where yesterday as the darkness gathered trudged an old man in wooden shoes and with the cordwood cudgel at his heels a dog of flanders end of section four madame guillon part two